It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show. You know, our mission is to serve you with info that empowers you to make better financial decisions in your life. And today, I want to talk about the work from home thing and how that is shifting in some ways and not others. And later, something came up in yesterday's podcast is making me made me really think about something. And that's what are the fees that you're actually absorbing in investments you make that can so affect your future financial security and dare I say wealth or lack thereof. We're going to talk about that. So the whole work from home thing became the thing for people who could do it during COVID. And there's been a lot of morphing with it in recent times as we've talked about some of the things employers have tried to do to either force or lure people back into the office. But as we're talking right now, there's been a real and ongoing shift in the marketplace. Across America now, somewhere around 15% of people overall work from home. I mean, obviously, if you do factory work, if you are a service worker, deliver, you know, going to fix equipment or whatever, there are so many jobs uh, over-the-road truck driver. I mean, your office is on the road. There are so many things where the nature of the work you do can't be from home. And listen to this. In states that are not office-oriented, the number of people who work from home can be quite low. Remember, the national average 15. Do you know in Mississippi, according to Axios, only 5% of people, lowest in the United States, work from home. 95% have to go somewhere to work. But then in big office-oriented cultures, you know, big cities that have a lot of office workers, it's more like 30% of people are working from home. And that doesn't even get in the whole hybrid thing in the office environment with people working in the office two, three days a week and home other times. So I've got a lot of thoughts in this area. First, I do think that workers lose something working at home all the time. And what it is, is I think you lose the connection with other people. I think there can be actual loneliness that occurs from working at home. But then there are other situations where working at home is absolutely fantastic, like someone who's got young kids. And cutting that commuting time out makes your connection to your kids better, and you got more time with them, and you got time for work. And in a lot of cities, traffic is not as bad, especially early in the day, although it seems to be bad or worse than ever later in the day while people who are supposedly working at home or out doing whatever. But this is something that has been a tough dilemma for employers. And if you're a regular listener to our podcast, you know we have people working for us all over the country on our websites. And when COVID hit, we didn't miss a beat because we had already worked in a remote collaborative environment. And it's worked for us. It's worked for us very well. But you know what I worry about, Krista? I worry about somebody who's fresh out of school, 
comes to work for us and is not in that environment with other people that they can learn from, learn how our culture, company culture works and all that. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we do tons of Google Meet. So people are together all the time and we do in-person events. That's why those are so important. Our company meetings and the trip we do once a year to do our annual company meeting away somewhere that's on sale. And, but it's not the same. You're right. Oh, but you gave it away. I was going to say, and where will we go on our next trip? It depends on what the, where the deal is, is on sale. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely different, but I remember we always did work from home Fridays for the people who did come into the office. But like you said, we've always had people who were remote around the country and an executive from another company once said to me, wow, you let people work from home one day a week? How does that work? (laughs) Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, yeah. I mean, was horrified at the fact that we do that. Yeah. And I said, it works just fine. You know, it's people really enjoy not having to do the commute once a week. But I do worry about people in isolation. Yes. I mean, for so many things in society, I do worry about people not working with others, rubbing shoulders with others. I think there's an advantage to that, but for so many people, I mean, think about people who are living all the way across the country from where their work is, mm-hmm. and they're able to, in most cases, make it work. Yeah. I mean, it has good and bad parts, like you said. But so. it's definitely not going away. I know there were a lot of older owners of businesses that were like, I only believe people are working if I can see them with my own eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Got to get past that. All right. We'll go to questions. This one's from JP in the District of Columbia. I'm looking at purchasing a tractor and found a pretty good deal on Craigslist. When I reached out to the seller, they wrote back sending me a link telling me they are selling their tractor on this website. It's a consignment website that I must register with. And after my order is approved by them and the seller, I pay this website and the tractor will be delivered with a seven day approval period. I've tried to research this company, but I can't find any info on it more recent than 2017. Is this a scam? And I gave you the website. Yeah, I'm looking right now. So the website was actually just created. The URL was just registered. Just registered in the last few weeks. But that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean they're bad or anything. So there have been a number of attempts to have consignment arrangements, particularly for business-to-business sales, business-to-consumer, because people often in a business, you're just trying to run your business. If you're having to deal with inquiries from people wanting to buy this, that, or the other, so that's led to these consignment organizations that either are physical consignment places that they have a lot, and your industrial equipment, farm equipment, office equipment, whatever is at their facility, people can come and buy their And you pay a consignment fee for that. And this is one that's virtual. So you list on the websites that they operate with, but your delivery and all that is handled by this third-party consignment thing. So is it legit? Uh, No way of knowing. The only people paying are the, the people listing stuff with them, pay a listing fee. The buyers, it's similar to what you'd have otherwise, except you're having this third-party servicer handle the delivery for you. The concept is just fine. It's all about execution and no way for me to know, no way for us to know 
Because there's so little information that you were able to find, Krista, about this organization. Yeah, I wouldn't do it myself just because of the lack of information. So there's, there's not enough for you to make a good decision. The idea is fine whether this particular consignment seller is okay. No way to know. Angie in Ohio says, would it be profitable to get into the medical career field? I have a lot of experience as a delivery driver. If you have been doing delivery and you're interested in doing medical courier, you want to chat up people who do it already. Find out the pluses and minuses of doing it. Sometimes medical couriers, you're going to have to be out of town. There are any of a number of wrinkles and angles to being a medical courier, even to the point of doing time-sensitive delivery of vital organs. I mean, there's so many different aspects to it. So there's no, like blanket this would be great to do or bad to do gosh that's like the theme of these two questions isn't it so i would definitely work for a company that does that if you're thinking of going out on your own i would work for someone else first you're just am i just i'm sorry i'm walking away i'm done no that's awesome that was great i love that yeah i'm sorry so that's uh, you know what's funny is that krista (laughs) said that and i was thinking that because that's what we always say about going into something that's tangential to what you've been doing. Go work for a company that does that. You'll find out pretty quickly, yeah, this is for you. It's not for you. It's more lucrative. It's not more lucrative. But it is a potential morphing opportunity for you from what you've already been doing. Richard in Georgia says, Clark, I took your advice a few years ago and got an umbrella insurance policy to supplement supplement my car insurance coverage. As you know, car insurance keeps going up. My question is, do I need additional car liability coverage since I have an umbrella policy? I'm thinking I can save money and reduce my auto coverage to the state minimum and still have my assets covered with the umbrella policy. So, Richard, the purpose of the umbrella is for everything going on in your life. And I don't know if you own a home, but usually the umbrella is when you own a home, you drive an automobile, and you have a variety of assets, what are called uncovered assets, where there's no money owed on them. So, you got something that's a nice, juicy target. Somebody was trying to hold you liable for something. Now, it will be up to the company you have your umbrella policy from your excess liability policy if they have minimum triggers required and often they will say you must first in order for the umbrella to be in effect you must have this much in liability coverage on your automobile policy you must have this much in liability coverage on your homeowner's policy or any other thing you have you have a boat anything like that so your company you get the umbrella from, if it's different than who handles your auto insurance, you have to ask them that question first. What is the required amount of liability you have? And you can reduce down to whatever the minimum is that they require for your umbrella to be in effect. If, if it's with the same company as your auto insurance is from, then it's pretty much automatic. They would say, nope, can't lower that liability below this because you have the umbrella policy with us. Um, coming up ahead, a uh, question yesterday triggered this today. And it's something that so often we look at as a mystery 
what are we actually paying for the investments we have? And long haul, that's going to be key to your future financial security. And that's coming straight ahead. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies, all lined up and ready to compare, so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. It was a question I had yesterday that just mentioned in passing that the Fidelity Investments target date funds were a ripoff with their fees. And I went into this long explanation about how Fidelity offered two different types of target date funds and one was terrible and one was good and and you got to look and see which you have under the hood in the 401k plan IRA whatever you have with fidelity and then that made me think about something i've read several times recently in financial publications and that's how i was talking about how in the Fidelity case, there's this index version of the target fund, and there's the regular version. You want to always be in the index fund. But index funds, generally in the marketplace, are not created equal. There are a lot of companies ripping you off in an index fund. Let me start with what an index fund is, because it should be the base for your investing, for just general investing, and for retirement, that what you're up to is index funds. Because what an index fund is, is it's where there's basically no professional manager saying, oh, I should absolutely buy this stock and that one and sell this one and that and all that. What an index fund is, is you just own little pieces of many, many, many companies that could be the most popular is the S&P 500 index, where you own little pieces of 500, 500 largest publicly traded companies, or you could own my favorite, the total stock market index, which is where you own little pieces of many, many, many thousands of companies, basically owning publicly traded American capitalism. I'm a big believer in international investing, so I own an international index fund as part of what I do. So basically, an index fund is where you're just taking a pulse of the market. And you're very average. I'm very average. I just want to ride with the market. I don't want to be too cute. The most important thing is live on less than what you make, hold down the cost of investments, and spread your money out. An index fund takes care of two and three. Number one is all you and me living on less than what you make so you have the money to invest. But just because I love 
index funds doesn't mean I love all index funds because a lot of the bank-based brokerage operations charge massively higher costs on index funds. Insurance companies that offer index funds, even worse than the bank-based brokerage operations on charging ridiculously high fees on these funds. On the other hand, if you go to my three favorite children, Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab, you're going to pay teensy tiny amounts, tiny, tiny management fees and no commissions for being in index funds. If you go in their close sibling, exchange traded funds, which is where, where like an index fund trades like a stock, those can be even cheaper. And the big sellers of those, you got Vanguard that's huge in that, but they're not even the biggest. There are others that are big in selling the index funds, but this is something that, uh, selling the exchange traded funds, this is something we're paying attention to the expense ratio you have to pay is one of the key parts of you creating long-term wealth. And I want to talk about a wealthy investor for a minute because in the Wall Street Journal, they gave an example of the difference it makes how much money someone will have going from a low-cost portfolio to a higher-cost portfolio. And over the course of the years, it is absolutely a stunner what a difference it makes and how much money you have. So here's a $1 million account invested for 40 years going from a fee of whatever to half a point lower, like going from a 1% fee, which people so often pay today when they go get outside advice, to paying a typical index or ETF fee of five one-hundredths of one percent, point zero five percent, that one million dollar account will end up with 370000 more dollars over a working lifetime just by holding down those expenses. So you may think that I'm worrying about pennies. No, I'm worrying about for you Think about hitting retirement and having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars more just by paying attention to expenses. So here's your assignment. In your 401k at work or the IRA you have, what are you paying in fees? What are those fees that you're absorbing? Find out because knowledge here is power. And if you're paying too much, I want you to get those fees down, down, down. Because there's no difference, basically, with a broad market index from one issuer to another to another. The only difference that matters is what you're paying in fees. And if you're kind of trapped in one with your employer, maybe talk to the HR department. Well, that may work. But what I would say is that if you're in a crummy 401k plan and the investment choices they offer are crummy, you put into that 401k plan up to the employer match, and then you do your own fantastic 
low-cost Roth IRA. All right, we'll go to questions. This one is from Pat in Oregon. We own a rental property in an LLC. We do not have a lot of monthly expenses we can put on a credit card. We do pay the utilities such as the water, internet, electricity, and the garbage. We do have the occasional Home Depot or Lowe's trip. Our average monthly business expenses are only about $400 unless there is something big that needs to be replaced. So many of the business credit cards require thousands of dollars in spending in the first three to six months to qualify for their sign-up bonuses. Do you have a recommendation for a business credit card that doesn't require thousands of dollars in spending to get the rewards? And P.S., my dog loves me listening to the podcast because that means we're on a walk. (laughs) I'm glad that we're able to educate your dog as well. Don't get a business credit card. The business credit cards don't have the same protections under the law as a consumer card. But at the same time, you are personally liable on that business card. So just get a good consumer card that you can use for the expenses you have. You're not going to get the great sign-up bonuses, but you don't have enough charge volume, let's say at $5,000 a year, that a lot of the uh, fancy reward cards are not really going to be appropriate. Just get a simple one and a half or two percent cashback card. Again, there may be a sign-up bonus that would be within reason on one of those. You can look at our list of cashback cards at Clark.com or at any site that shows cashback card deals. That would be the simpler way. Since you're liable anyway, you just get that card, but you use it only for the rental property, only in that LLC. So at what point should a business get a business credit card? If you're big enough that you are need the type of card where you can have individual expense tracking for individual employees and you're giving out a significant number of these cards to different employees, that's when it makes sense. Okay. And we do have a, the best small business credit cards on Clark.com. Jerry in Florida says, my youngest son will study abroad in New Zealand from January to June of next year. I'm jealous. I'm jealous too. <laughs> well, that sounds like real hardship. Yep. We currently have the T-Mobile Magenta Max military plan, which provides free international roaming and texts and 25 cents per minute calls. A T-Mobile rep recommended adding the T-Mobile Global Plus plan for $50 a month, but the fine print indicates... Right, uh, we can stop right there. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. What happened to the uncarrier? What happened? John Ledger, come out of retirement. Stop doing your cooking videos and come back and bring that magic back that T-Mobile used to have. Because my son said recently, it was funny because he said, Dad, what's the difference between T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon today? I said, there's no difference between them now. I mean, I think about when John Ledger was running T-Mobile and he called uh, Verizon and AT&T dumb and dumber and they were run like typical bureaucratic monoliths and now all three of them are. That was the worst advice they could have given you. Hold on to that passion. So they did suggest adding the T-Mobile Global Plus plan. Yuck. The fine print indicates not for extended international use. You must reside in the U.S. and primary usage must occur on our U.S. network. 
He will need to be able to make local calls in New Zealand as well as talk to his friends and family back in the States. Okay, so that completes the thought. Yes, T-Mobile, get your act together. You want to be better? Be better. Don't be like Dumb and Dumber. I guess we're going to call them Dumb, Dumber, and Dumbest. Okay, so Jerry's son. So Jerry's son. What you do? Jerry, your son's going to buy a local SIM in New Zealand, a local SIM card. That's going to be his service. Got to make sure that the phone that he's got with T-Mobile is unlocked. If necessary, you'll either have to pay off the remainder of that contract so it's unlocked on the phone, or he'll need a different phone to use in New Zealand because he's not going to want to use, in fact, you'll want to suspend the T-Mobile service for those six months he's in New Zealand because he'll do a local SIM. He'll be able to make calls and all that in New Zealand. He'll have data in New Zealand. This is how you do any extended stay past 30 days in a foreign country is you buy a local SIM. Then with you, he'll communicate either on the backbone of if you're an iPhone family, you'll do your communicating back and forth on iMessage and FaceTime and blah, blah, blah. If you're a, a mixed family with Android and iPhone, you'll be using WhatsApp or Viber, those kind of apps to do free calling, free video calling, all of that. And this is so easy and it'll be really easy for your son because most of what you need is data backbone. Uh, He'll learn from his friends in the study abroad program when he gets there, which is the best local SIM to have in New Zealand that he just pops into that phone for those six months. And He's a really lucky guy. Okay, so th- I thought this was crazy. We have another question from a Jerry. This Jerry's in Colorado about New Zealand. So here it goes. I booked an 11-day cruise around New Zealand that starts out of Sydney. We have five nights in Sydney before we start the cruise. What's the best way to get around? I'm a little nervous using a rental car because I think they drive on the other side of the road. They do drive on the other side of the road. Australians generally drive much better than Americans. I've driven in Australia uh, multiple cities multiple times. But Sydney, if you're five nights are in Sydney, the public transit in Sydney is so incredibly great, you will never need a car at any time in Sydney. The public transit is not confusing. In fact, before you go, you can download public transit apps for Sydney you will at first maybe be a little disoriented. It will be very easy. It's a much quicker way to get around Sydney than driving anyway. And then you don't have to worry about parking a car, knowing what the boot and the bonnet is and all of that. It'll be great. And then don't forget to take the public ferry too. It's like a cool public transit boat ride in the harbor. I mean, it's amazing. They have a great system. Sydney is wonderful. I remember the first time I rented a car in Australia, I rented a stick shift. So the stick shift's on the wrong <laughs> side. And I'm trying to drive. And, uh, oh. Oh, my gosh. I can't oh. imagine. Oh, boy. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a great thing to go to the South Pacific. We got two wonderful adventures going on back to back there. And I want to tell you, we have 
lots of stuff for you other than this podcast, the audio or video version of the podcast. We have our websites and we have our free newsletters. If you want more information coming to you in your email in basket for free, go to clark.com slash newsletters. I want to make something clear to you. If you subscribe to one of our newsletters and you're like, this is a waste of time. We make it really easy for you to can us. At the same time, I think you'll find really good advice in our newsletters at the best price of all, free. Hope you have a great day.